So we are, we're, in the, we're in the middle of our Joshua series at the moment, and uh, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, really the, the, the last event, I guess, that we looked at in the story was uh, Israel has entered the, the land of Canaan, the promised land. They've started to conquer the various cities that are in Canaan, and uh, one by one they've, they've taken ground and they've conquered people groups and nations as God has commanded them. And again, Joshua is really the story of God fulfilling his promises. It's not primarily the story of Israel. And, you know, we think the Bible's about us, but it's actually his story, right? Uh, so it's about God making good on his word to do what he said he would do and give Israel the land. And he's doing that. And uh, last major episode we looked at, Israel had foolishly entered into a peace treaty with one of the Canaanite peoples. They'd been duped by Gibeon, who pretended to be from another country. And uh, so Israel had said, okay, we'll, we'll make this peace treaty with you. And now there's this group of Canaanites that they cannot wipe out, or they won't wipe out at least, because they've made a treaty with, uh, with them in, in the name of God. And so what happens quite soon is that the city of Gibeon, that's entered now into an alliance with Israel, word gets out around the rest of the country that this has happened. And understandably, the rest of the Canaanites aren't particularly happy about this because they had counted on Gibeon, this important city, this royal city, a city with a good army and a lot of, a lot of fighting power. They'd really counted on that city to come to the aid of the Canaanites and fight against the Israelites and suddenly Gibeon's defected and gone over to Israel's side. So the rest of the Canaanites are a bit concerned about this and so a lot of them band together. There's this confederacy that develops in southern Canaan, led by the king of Jerusalem. And he gets on the phone to all these other nations and kings and says, hey, we've got to do something about this. There's a major problem going on here. If we're not careful, we are going to lose this whole region. We're going to lose this whole land. We have got to take these Israelites down. And so the, uh, the Canaanite kings come together and they muster up their armies and they launch this massive assault on not Israel, but on Gibeon for defecting. And they're really thinking, we're going to teach these guys a lesson. Let's uh, take them down and show them that you don't get to defect quite so easily. Let's surround Gideon and we'll wipe them out. And then we'll show Israel that we're big and tough and we can take them down too. So they, they get all their forces together and they come against Gibeon. And, and somehow, just before Gibeon's attack, they manage to get word out. They manage to get some scout or messenger out. And they send this guy to where Israel is camped at Gilgal. And they say, uh, hey, you remember us? We're the Gibeonites. And uh, we're the guys that made that treaty with you. You might have remembered us from such countries as the one we made up, uh, you know, ages away. And actually, we're from next door. Yeah, that's us. And so you made this treaty, right? Pulled out the contract here. This is your signature, isn't it? That's right. Witness this day, this day. And so now we kind of need your help because we're in a tight spot. These guys have surrounded us and they are going to take us down, our own people, our own Canaanite countrymen. So if, if you wouldn't mind uh, coming and helping us, please. Uh, you can imagine, like, if you were Joshua, what would you do? Really, I mean, you'd be like, this, this is very convenient. Really, this is a great opportunity just to ignore, conveniently, the Gibeonites, and then these got, they're destroyed by their own people. Easy, wiped out, helps us, really. But interestingly, Joshua doesn't do that. Um, and I guess we can only assume it's, it's because he's a man of his word and he, and he puts so much stock in this oath that he'd made in the name of God, really believed that that needed to be honoured. And so uh, he says, let's do it. Let's go and protect Gibeon. Let's rescue the very people 
that God actually commanded us to wipe out. So Joshua assembles the army of Israel and they go on this massive all-night march, which is really what took the Canaanites by surprise because Israel's marched through the night from Gilgal where they were camped over to Gibeon, heading east. And they arrive in the morning at Gibeon and the city's surrounded by these armies of people, but they're just waking up. You know, they're still just kind of having their wheat bags and suddenly they look up, whoa, you know, the Israelites are here, we're in trouble, and the Israelites just pounce, ambush. And uh, it's, it's pretty successful. What, it's interesting in this story, if you read it closely, and it would be good to go back and read it closely, uh, it's, it's a wonderful interplay of God's activity in the situation and also human activity. It's this beautiful blending together. God is working, he's intervening, he's doing things, but he's not just, it's not, it's not kind of like, it's not like Jericho, you know, where God brought the walls down and it was basically a done deal. You know, God does a few things and then the Israelites, they work and they act and they, so it's this wonderful divine human interplay. God, first thing he does is he sends the Canaanite armies into confusion. So there's chaos in the ranks, they're all turning against each other, somehow they just, there's sort of this, insanity that just comes over the Canaanite camp. And this gives Israel the ability to attack and to rescue Gibeon, to drive the Canaanites away from the city of Gibeon. But Joshua is not content on this occasion simply to defend Gibeon. Here's a wonderful leadership lesson that comes out of Joshua. This guy was a military genius and he sees in this moment an opportunity to really make some headway. In the conquest. Here is a confederacy of five cities in southern Canaan. And Joshua's thinking, we don't just need to protect Gibeon. We can take the opportunity to wipe these guys out, to take them down, and we will have a major stronghold on the whole southern region of this country. So Joshua doesn't simply free Gibeon. He takes then his whole army and says, pursue the Gibeonites who are retreating. He says, go after them. And let's finish this today. So Joshua's armies pursue the Gibeonite armies and the Gibeonites are taking off along this path called Beth Horon which first goes up very steeply to a mountain range and then it comes down and it sort of heads towards the coastal plains and looking out over the Mediterranean. And so these guys are clambering up and over and Joshua's armies are following them up and over. And here's the second thing God does that day, coming to the aid of Israel. As the Canaanite armies are, are, are fleeing, and the Israeli army is in pursuit, God somehow opens up this massive hailstorm and, and starts raining down hail. Have you ever been in a massive hailstorm? There was one, wasn't there, not too long ago in Auckland. Did anybody get caught in that hailstorm, like outside? And those were big, but I had never seen bits of hail. They were as big as a dice. They were huge. I was at home inside, but I put my hand out you know, under the hail. It was like, it stings. You get hit by that stuff. And that was just little pieces of hail. Imagine death by hail. I mean, that would be, that would be a pretty rough way to go. But apparently, the narrator says, more of these Canaanites died through the hail than at the swords of the Israelites. So God is raining down bits of hail, chunks of ice, big enough, fast enough, severe enough to actually take out these people. I mean, that is pretty, that's pretty severe. It's genius but it's pretty severe. And you can imagine, just try and picture the scene as Joshua and the Israelites are pursuing the Canaanite armies and they come up the Beth Horon Pass and they, they're on top of the mountain ridge and as they clear the ridge and they look out then over this descending path where the Canaanites were fleeing, leading down towards these plains and out finally towards the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. 
And they see just a mass of, of men, these fighting men, these Canaanites, running in this kind of insane chaos, not knowing which way they're going or what they're doing. And, and, and he also looks and sees this huge cloud, this huge storm cloud, right over the place where the Canaanites were fleeing, with hail just bucketing down on this army. And Joshua realizes this is our moment. God is giving these armies into our hand. We're going to take them out. But he also looks up at the, in the sky and he sees the, the, the Middle Eastern sun starting to make its long descent uh, in the afternoon. And he realizes that the, the day is not going to be long enough to finish the job. And so Joshua prays this prayer, and it's an incredible prayer. In verse 12 or 13 of Joshua, he does this extraordinary thing. Verse 12, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord, so this is a prayer. He's not literally talking to the, to the sun or the earth. He's talking to God. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon. And you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. And then verse 13, so the sun stopped. And the moon, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. This unbelievable miracle happens. And the funny thing is, it's like at this point, the narrator of Joshua just loses all decorum. He's like so excited about what's happening. He, up to this point, he's just been this impartial narrator. This happened, this happened. Then you get to verse 14, and it's like he throws off all pretense, and he's just like, yes, this was awesome. Verse 14, there has never been a day like it or before it since when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. It's like he just doesn't care about being an objective historian anymore. He's like, man, God's on our side. This is fantastic. And there's an unbelievable miracle occurs somehow. And, and, and there are questions, you know, over what actually happened that day. And, and, and you scientifically minded people, you know, you, you, you'd be thinking this already. What actually happened? Sometimes people use this story to hold the Bible up to ridicule. Because they say, well, look at this. I mean, the, Joshua and the Israelites seem to think the sun needed to stand still. I mean, everybody knows the sun doesn't move, right? The earth moves, the sun stops. So this is just obviously evidence that the Bible's a load of rubbish because they can't even get basic cosmology right. So that's the argument. Um, it's interesting that those same people don't usually wake up in the morning and look out their window and say, what a beautiful day the earth has tilted just enough for me to be able to see the sun. <laughs> right? They don't say that. What do they say? The sun's risen. Sun's up. Hey. Now we know what we're saying when we say that, right? We're not idiots. If you did science at primary school level, I mean, of course we know the earth tilts and rotates, it's not the sun that's actually moving, but this is from our vantage point. This is a human perspective. The sun's risen, sun's up, sun's going down, sunset, sunrise. We, we can use these terms, can't we? Surely, without having to assume that we're talking literally about what the sun is or is not doing. This is the same as it was for Joshua. Joshua is looking from his vantage point and seeing the sun stopped in the sky. You can't blame Joshua for not having heard of Copernicus, can you? <laughs> really? I mean, these guys, were you, were you understanding the world as they understood it and seeing the planets and the stars as they saw them? This is from a human, human vantage point. You can't hold them to modern scientific historical standards any more than you can 
look at the author of Acts and assume that he's a modern-day historian and will do everything modern-day historians do. Of course he won't. He'll use his sources and his ways, and this is, this is us being able to let the ancient writers be ancient writers. While God was still, of course, the divine author. Now, there's still questions, and there's still problems. Because, uh, okay, what if it was the earth that stopped? Well, that would be a problem because the earth's, you know, spinning around at thousands of kilometres an hour, and if suddenly the earth stopped, we'd all fall off, right? It'd be massive destruction. Everything would just, phew, everything that wasn't absolutely bedrock anchored in would all just fly off the earth. So how did, how did this all work? Now, some people, there's a couple of schools of thought, right? You, you can go either way on this one. Um, one school of thought says that God literally, literally, uh, stopped the earth spinning and somehow mitigated the normal physical cosmological effects that would have. Um, and you have to assume God could do that. I mean, if he created the earth, he can manipulate the creation far better than we would know. So he may have physically stopped the earth. Another explanation, though, still among Christians that take the Bible seriously, is that God didn't literally stop the earth from spinning or orbiting the sun this was, this was a miracle of appearance. So it was a miracle of refraction or a mirage or something like that. God effectively prolonged the daylight. Right? No, in my view, no less a miracle. It's still organized and orchestrated by God. The question is really just how he did it. Did he physically stop the earth or did he simply work things, natural forces, in such a way that the daylight increased for another 24, you know, early daylight savings, right? So he just lengthened it out for a whole 24-hour day. So it appeared the sun was still in the sky and it was daylight, but God simply was mirage, it was refraction, whatever. I I don't think that is uh, playing fast and loose with the Bible. I think that's perfectly logical. I think what the, it's interesting, the author of Joshua doesn't really care which way you go because he doesn't take 15 pages explaining carefully exactly how it all worked. He just says, here's the things you need to know. One, it was done by God. That's essential. Not just an accident, not just a freak of nature, not, not just in Joshua's imagination. That, I mean, there are liberal scholars that say, well, this is just poetry, this is just, you know. No, no, something happened, and it was organized by God. And secondly, it was organized for his purposes. Not a party trick, not a, hey, look at me, guess what I can do with the earth and the sun. No, no, this was for Israel's benefit to enable them to conquer their enemies, and they, they really did. I mean, this was a pretty decisive victory. Of all the victory stories in Joshua, chapter 10 is, is the biggie. I mean, they just trounce the Amorite armies, all five of them, and then this opens up the whole southern region of Canaan, and they go on the systematic southern campaign then and just wipe out the cities. By the end of Joshua, Joshua 11, or even, I think, at the end of chapter 10, by the end, by the end of one of those chapters, the whole of the southern Canaan is theirs. They've taken the whole lot. And by the end of chapter 13, the whole land is basically theirs. This is really the beachhead that uh, gets them on the way of uh, getting this conquest sorted. So this was an incredibly decisive victory for uh, Yahweh and for the Israelites. And I wonder if, you know, you imagine Joshua at the end of this, the, literally the longest day of his life, finally, you know, and I mean, they must have been exhausted, but finally when the sun does go down, uh, and imagine Joshua cleaning his boots that day and just thinking about what kind of day it had been and just wondering, uh, what kind of God is this? I mean, they didn't have the whole Bible like we do and they see everything that's coming and understand the whole story. They're just getting to know Yahweh. 
And they just must have thought, what kind of God are we dealing with here? I mean, we knew that he was amazing when he brought us out of Egypt and he led us across Jordan and he's given us these victories, but a God that would prolong the day, stop the sun, a God that would rain down hail on his enemies to give us victory. This is just an unbelievable God. It reminds me of that quote from uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You remember when Lucy asks about Aslan, is he safe? And the reply comes from Mr. Beaver. Of course he's not safe, but he is good. It's a wonderful picture of the God of the Old Testament, but of course of all history. You know, we, we'd prefer sometimes, I think, that God was safe, manageable, containable, in our box, right? In our nice middle-class schedule, thank you very much, answer our prayers, do our bidding, a God that works on our terms, a God that signs off on our statement of faith here, you know, a, a God that would, you know, just just made in our image, really, containable, nice, safe God. But God's not that, is he? He doesn't live in your box. You know, even though we think he does, even though we'd like to assume that God's this little creature here that I can pull out at whim and answers my prayers and does my bidding, he's not that. He's not safe. He's a wild God. He's untamable. He's not domesticated. And he doesn't play by our rules and he doesn't do things our way and he doesn't agree to our terms. He is an all-consuming fire. A God who rains down hailstones on his enemies. A God who stops the sun in the sky or does whatever he does to incredible lengths to, to ensure these victories. This is an unbelievable God. We've got to get a bigger vision of who God is. We've got to allow God to be greater than who we think he is and recapture this image of the wild God, the unsafe God, but the God who is very good. The God who fights on behalf of his people. The God who doesn't play games with people but intervenes in space-time history on earth on behalf of those he loves, the God who fights for and with and alongside his people and gives them victory. That's our God. This God is our God. He's the same God, the God of Joshua, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God that we worship, we serve, we sing to, we learn from, we take communion with today. Same God, same deal. An incredibly big God. How big is your God? I have to admit that um, as, I was, as I was preparing this message, you know, there's a tension in me with this sort of stuff because I, I don't have a lot of days like Joshua 10. Um, this week hasn't been, for me, that kind of week. A week of incredible victories and great mountaintop experiences. And I wish it was, and, and you know, we do have those days and we have those times sometimes, but you might be feeling it too, that, you know, that kind of thing seems a lot of the time disconnected from our experience. And it's hard. I found, honestly, and I shared with the staff this week, I found it hard to see myself in the story. Uh, I, I just, I struggled to connect. You know, I, I, I want to embrace the God of Joshua 10 and, 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 and it excites me and it motivates me and, and I love that. But I, I, I struggle to see that in my experience sometimes. The life that I live is, it's, it seems like this is just two different things. Uh, and, and I don't know exactly how to, how to reconcile that because we want to, get excited about the great big God, the unsafe God, but the God who's good. And yet our life is not that. You know, we want to see those kind of miracles, don't we? Right? We want to see, you know, wouldn't mind a little bit more sunlight in some days, you know, to get the stuff done that I need to get done, you know? How many of us wouldn't have minded a little bit of hail, you know, on our enemies sometimes, right? You know, let's be honest, you know, a bit of hail wouldn't go astray. Well, that guy's on his way home, you know? <laughs> if we're honest. 
As far as God throwing people into mass confusion, I've got plenty of that, so I'm pretty good, pretty good on that front. But, you know, we would like a bit more of that stuff than we see. And it was interesting for me, I mean, just sharing my journey this week, I guess, is kind of what this message has become. But as, as God led me through this passage, he led me to the end of this story, which I'd never really looked at much before. And there's something there that I really held on to and really spoke to me. It's interesting when Joshua finally gets these kings, these Amorite kings, these, these enemies, uh, and, and, he, and he kills them, and it's, it's brutal, and it's gory, and he actually hangs, them, hangs their bodies up on these poles until sunset. He, he literally hangs them up. And the reason for that goes back to Deuteronomy 21, by the way, which says this, uh, if anyone is guilty of a capital offense, if they're put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, uh, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And this is why they did that um, with these kings, because the act of hanging them up like that on a, on a pole uh, symbolized the fact they were God's enemies and they were cursed by him. And it struck me, as I looked at that, that there was a Jewish man hung up on a wooden pole a couple thousand years later, not too far from where these kings were strung up, who also became a curse. And this story, among other things, gives us a rich backdrop, I think, to see Jesus and to see what he did. Paul reflects on this in Galatians 3, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 21, because it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He actually quotes that scripture. In the Jewish mind, if a person was hung up on a pole, a cross, a stake, something like that, they were, by definition, an object of God's cursing. They were categorically an enemy of God. This is why Jews struggle so much to accept the idea of Jesus as a Messiah figure. This is why Paul says the gospel is scandalous to the Jews because the idea of a crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. It doesn't happen. You can't be crucified and be the Messiah because to be crucified by definition is to come under the cursing of God, not his blessing. You're not going to be a deliverer. You're going to be condemned and cursed and evil and judged. That's who you are. And the irony, the beautiful paradox of the gospel is that, of course, that's right in more ways than Jews ever realized, in different ways than they ever saw. Jesus was an object of divine cursing. He did become a curse on that tree, on that cross. He was made into an enemy of God, but not for himself, for us. This is the incredible surprise ending that God pulled on the cross, not cursed for his own sin and transgression because in himself he was an enemy, but because we are God's enemies, And we have, through his cursing, become God's friends. That's the miracle of what Jesus did. And as I came back to Joshua 10 in view of that, I really sensed God saying to me this week, you know, I know that you struggle to see yourself in this story, and I know you struggle to see these kinds of miracles a lot of the time in your life, but what I've done for you in Jesus is so much greater than what I did for the Israelites that day. Uh, incredible as that miracle was, it was overshadowed by what Jesus did on the cross for you and I. You know, that day God won a victory over the Amorites and, and, and physically conquered them, but on the cross Jesus won this victory over sin and death and Satan and everything that comes against you and me. Everything, everyone, physical, spiritual, whatever it is, God triumphed over them on the cross and put them to death and robbed them of their power. That's what he accomplished. You know, in Joshua 10 God won a victory for Israel, but on the cross, 
He vowed on the cross and in the empty tomb that he would never leave you. Never leave me. Never forsake us. Never abandon us. That song we sung, he's never going to let go of you. doesn't matter how difficult it gets. doesn't matter how hard it gets. doesn't matter how tough it gets. doesn't matter how far you think it's never going to end. God's never, ever going anywhere. And it's the cross and the empty tomb that prove that to you, that make that rock solid. He's not going anywhere. Even though you don't feel his presence a lot of the time, even though you just feel disconnected and isolated, as I've done a lot, it's the cross that speaks to us of God's presence and his comfort. It's the cross that enables us to hear those words Grant read out in Romans 8, neither height nor depth, angels, demons, the present, the future, anything in all of creation can ever, ever, ever separate you and I from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You can't be separated from it because of what Jesus purchased for you on the cross, setting you free, redeeming you, bringing you back to new life. This is the paradox of Christian victory. This is what God's taught me this week. Your victory, my victory, you know, you hear a lot about victorious Christian living and and often there's this assumption that we have an entitlement to be hassle-free and struggle-free and worry-free in life. God never promised that. Not to you, not to me. But what he did promise us is victory in the midst of the rubbish that life dishes up. Right there in the midst of it. Paul says it's in all these things that we overwhelmingly conquer. Not aside from them, not through some scenic route around the outside of your troubles, but right in the midst of the junk and in the midst of the valley and in the midst of the darkness. It's in that stuff that we have this victory. It's the paradox. It's victory in defeat. It's strength in the midst of weakness. It's wholeness in brokenness. It's honor in shame. It's wisdom in foolishness. This is why Paul says, you know, we're, we're crushed, but we're not destroyed. We're beaten down, but we're not abandoned. Because we carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus might be made known. That's why our gospel is dying and rising. It's both. And even in the midst of the dying, there's the rising. Our gospel's death and resurrection, not just resurrection. And it's in the process of dying in a million little ways through the hassles and the struggles and the ill health and the problems and the financial meltdowns and the relationship meltdowns that you're having, all of that stuff. It's in the midst of it, not aside from it, in it that you find victory and you find strength. God meets you in it, in the storm. Gordon Wenham says, the greatest grace in the New Testament is not the removal of suffering, but perseverance despite suffering. It's knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul doesn't say no one's going to be against you. He says, what does it matter? What does it matter? There's nothing that can come against us that can ever rob us of the spirit-filled life that we have in Jesus Christ. And it means that even in the midst of what I'm dealing with and what you're dealing with, we know that the Spirit leads us to Jesus, leads us to the Father, and places us in this place of protection and, and brings wind underneath our wings that we can just go one more step, take one more breath, go one more round, and move through it in the power and the presence of the Spirit. It means that we are comforted. It means that we can comfort others. And it means that we know that no matter what happens, God's going to work the story out in the end. It doesn't mean I expect a quick fix. It doesn't mean that I naively assume that I'm going to get a get-out-of-jail-free card, just a ticket to a hassle-free life. But it means that I know that God's got history under control. He's got my circumstances under control. He's got your circumstances under control. 
and he's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to give up on you. I read the story this week of uh, Jim Collins who wrote a book called Good to Great and he talks in there about a guy that he met, Admiral Jim Stockdale. And Jim Stockdale was a prisoner of war for seven years, one of the highest ranking officers in a Vietnamese uh, prisoner of war camp called Hanoi Hilton. He was there for uh, many, many years and he was tortured during that time. He had no sense of whether or if he would ever be released. His, his captors could come in and torture him at will, just an incredibly desperate and hopeless situation. And Jim Collins had lunch with, with Jim Stockdale and asked him, what was it that enabled you to keep going in the midst of that situation? And uh, this is what Stockdale said. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted, not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. And then later in the lunch, uh, Jim Collins turned to Stockdale again and asked him a second question. He said, who didn't survive? And Stockdale said, that's easy, the optimists. The optimists were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come. And Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. And then he turned to Jim Collins and said this. This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. It's profound, isn't it? Jim Collins calls this the Stockdale paradox. He says, I can still hear Jim Stockdale <laughs> in my head every day saying, we're not getting out by Christmas, deal with it. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. You know. and, and the Bible, I think, if we take it seriously and we live it faithfully, it prevents us from being pessimists or optimists, I think. I think there's, a, there's another road, and it's the road of faith. And faith says to us, I don't naively assume everything's just going to work out in a quick fix, flick a switch, everything's transformed. We don't expect that because we're not promised that. We, we live between the ages, already but not yet. But faith has a rock-solid assurance that one day God will step in draw the curtains to a close on human history and usher in a new creation. And that's where our hope is anchored. And that guides us even in the midst of the turbulence in our lives that we know that's where it's heading. We're oriented in that direction and we know that the story is going to work out in the end. And that's what speaks hope and life into our hearts in the present. That's what's helped me make sense of, of some of the stuff that I'm wrestling with at the moment. That's what's helped me figure things out and try to figure out what faith really is. Not just a commodity that I throw around and use as a bargaining chip with God, but an assurance that he's in control, that he's won an incredible victory on the cross, that the story of Joshua and the sun standing still points us towards, but it's ultimately that story, excuse the pun, but it's eclipsed by the cross. The cross is far, far greater. And that's where we can draw power, strength, and the empty tomb exists to prove that Jesus lives and that resurrected life is available to us, not only in the good times, not only on the mountaintops, but including and especially in the valleys, in the heartache and the pain and the stress and the loss. Those are the times, I think, 
when the risen Lord Jesus Christ makes himself most real, most known, and most near. Father, I thank you for that assurance and that promise. And Jesus, just with simplicity of heart this morning, we thank you for the victory you've won. God, you know we can often become in our lives so triumphalist, like everything's going to be great. And God, it just doesn't even square a lot of the time with the real junk that we wrestle with in our lives. But I thank you that you are a God who brings victory in the midst of defeat and strength and weakness. And you bring rising resurrection out of dying. And Father, we uh, take hold of that this morning. Take hold of the power of your Spirit and the presence of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, for each of my brothers and sisters here this morning and those that will listen to this on CD, especially for those that are struggling this morning, battling against all kinds of things that come across our paths. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the love of God the Father and of Jesus Christ and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit would be theirs in abundance this week. We pray this in the name of your risen Son, Jesus. Amen.